0: Hello and welcome to this uh, special edition of Irreligiosophy. We have a uh, uh, special guest here, Dr. Robert Price. Um, I have been following Dr. Price. I've kind of been stalking him ever since he was on uh, Infidel Guy and the, the Bible Geek. So I'm really excited.
1: Yeah, truth be told, I thought he scared him off when Charlie sent him this real fanboyish email. And I thought, God, that guy's never going to come on our show after seeing that. <laughs> <laughs>
0: but we made it. He's on um and uh, dr price uh you like to be called dr Price or so what should we call you
2: uh bob's
0: fine bob's fine uh-huh. uh let's start now i you started out as a as a fundamentalist christian, is that right hallelujah <laughs> <laughs> what changed your mind
2: well uh, i uh, got into the uh the study of the Bible uh, in in pretty uh, minute detail, and uh, I began to notice that some of the stuff I said at the Baptist Church I attended didn't seem to have much scriptural support, and that made me a little suspicious, but redoubled my attention to the text, and then I got into apologetics. This is when I was, um, I guess, just getting... I, yeah, I guess I was just getting into college, and uh, I got involved with an intervarsity Christian fellowship group there, and read all of their uh, interesting books about how the faith is true and has the best perspective on everything. And I really thoroughly enjoyed that. But uh, I found that the more I got into trying to defend the faith, the more I uh, was unable to just uh, relax and have faith anymore. Uh, I realized uh, if you're going to go back and forth on the battlefield of argument, even just inside your own head, uh, faith is really much more difficult to come by. Uh, I, I felt like I, I did not dare to be dishonest and try arguments on people to get them to believe in Christ or whatever that I didn't think were cogent, and I knew there were a lot of Silly ones out there, and and that. Uh, so I felt like I had to kind of set aside my faith to evaluate the arguments, and this pretty much poisoned the the whole thing. Though I was glad it did, uh, and eventually I found that um, there was just a lot of very important data uh, that um, that none of the apologists I read had ever brought up, and. By contrast, uh, there was a lot that the uh, liberal and skeptical scholars I had read refutations of, there was a lot that they had to say that was quite cogent and just ignored in what I had read. And so I was uh, halfway through my uh, master's degree in New Testament at Gordon Conwell Seminary in 77 when I just realized uh, the whole evangelical Christian thing uh, just does not hold water. It just doesn't work. It's self-contradictory in every way. I wasn't opposed to believing in God or the supernatural or whatever, but just, this just seemed to me to be a house of cards. So I started reading, uh, well, a lot of biblical critics and other theologians like Paul Tillich and Process Theology and all sorts of stuff. And, uh, I wound up being kind of a religiously friendly agnostic. I felt like, uh, the supernatural probably it was just not enough reason to, to Positively believe that. Uh, Who knows what's going on in the universe, but there's just no reason to affirm this. And uh, yet I thought, well, spirituality seems to be a healthy thing. And after really decades now, I guess I still feel that way. I go to church because it's an aesthetic and sort of uh, transcendent sort of experience that gives me perspective. I wouldn't get the rest of the. The weak, but it 's kind of a matter of coleridge 's temporary willing suspension of disbelief um, it's it 's not really i don 't think religion has anything to do anymore with actually believing. Dubious assertions that can never be proved that 's probably just a big mistake way back and uh, the benefits of it don 't depend upon that and uh, so i I find myself uh, going to the Episcopal church and speaking at atheist conferences with no inconsistency
0: yeah that that was my next question what type of church so it 's an episcopal church. those guys are pretty uh forward thinking they they have i think there 's a big argument between the um, was it the European or African Episcopalian Church and the American one about ordaining women and homosexuals to the priesthood, is that right?
2: Yeah, that's right. The, there's a lot of really arch-traditionalist uh, ex-missionary churches uh, in the Anglican uh, communion that are in uh, in sub-Saharan Africa and they're basically fundamentalists in, in theology and there's a wing of the American church that likes that and has actually separated itself from the Episcopal Church USA to go under the supervision of some of these African bishops uh, in Rwanda I know is a big one for for that and uh, I I just, I think uh, throw birds of a feather flock together, if they're happier there, I'm glad, I don't want them trying to force fundamentalism <laughs> on the,
1: the rest of us in the church. Well, I'm, I'm kind of curious. You bring up that you still go to church, and I'm pretty sure if Charlie and I ever went to church, we would be stoned. But uh, do you ever get reactions where people are like, oh, you're that guy?
2: Well, I I uh, don't seem to. When I had gone to this church uh, for about three years back in the mid-80s, when I taught at a, a Baptist college down here and uh, I, uh, people knew I had critical views, and uh, a lot of people came to discussion groups that I led and, and so forth, so nobody seemed to mind. Then I went, back up to New Jersey for a dozen years, and then I worked first for a liberal Baptist church I pastored, then I worked for a few years for the Center for Inquiry, the Paul Kurtz group, but then I moved back down here with my family and decided to go to church again. Well, they made a big deal of uh, in their newsletter, Welcome to me back at reproducing a lot of stuff from some secular humanist newsletter about me. I thought, oh boy. Uh, w- why'd they do this? But nobody ever uh, gave a peep uh, about that if they understood what they were reading. Um, and I assume they did. Uh, they just uh, they made nothing of it, and I get along fine with everybody.
0: Yeah, the Episcopalian oh, that- church is a little different than the Mormon church, Layton. We're We're in Utah. Oh. We're surrounded by
1: Mormons. Um, uh-huh. they're, they're a well, little. Uh, helps,
0: that's for sure.
1: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I'm pretty sure if we walked into any church, you and I, we would be stoned, Charlie. That, uh, that's just no the way. bottom line.
0: Episcopalians and Unitarians, <laughs> those guys aren't stoning anybody.
1: All yeah. right. Well, maybe they just spit on us when we walked in.
0: They tend to be. They might. They might shrug their shoulders in, in mild disapproval, but I think they're pretty open. That could be a new mode of baptism in Unitarianism. <laughs> <is wrong. laughs> oh, God. Well, hey, um, the, uh, when I read The Incredible Shrinking Son of Man, it was a really eye-opening experience to me. Leighton and I have done a podcast about pagan precursors uh, to Old Testament and New Testament stuff. But when I read the book, I was uh, stunned by how much the New Testament stuff was cribbed from the Old Testament.
2: Oh, yeah, that is amazing,
0: yeah. Never thought about that before, and, uh, I mean, you bring up really specific examples of where where I think Mark has stitched together three things and a, a bunch of the stuff from the crucifixion, because no one apparently oh, yeah, was yeah. there. Or there was no tradition, and so they just all kind of made stuff up, and the best place to make it up, I guess, to make it sound authentic, was to go to the Old Testament.
2: Yeah, Earl Doherty pointed this out in his great book, The Jesus Puzzle, that he just zeroes in on one passage in First Corinthians 15, where it appears to be a kind of... A, Liturgy or creed or formula being quoted by the author. He uh, died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, etc. And then rose uh, in accordance with the scriptures. And most people had always taken this to mean uh, that um, these events were prophesied uh, whether or not we knew to expect them. But now in the, in the, uh, event, having seen uh, Jesus crucified and visions of him raised from the dead, at least now we realize that these things were prophesied. We should have been uh, looking for them. Well, uh, Doherty said, uh, you know, it, it doesn't look that way to me. It, it looks as if what the, the writer means is, we know that he died and rose because it says so in the Old Testament. And I thought, well, that's uh, over some of these details. Yes, like where does Matthew get the idea Jesus was sold out for 30 pieces of silver? It's not in Mark, uh, his source material. Well, what do you know? He got it out of Zechariah chapter 12. He just plucked it out of context. And so I knew some of that had gone on. How did he? How did Matthew know Jesus and his family went to Egypt? Was there a tradition to that effect? Uh, no, probably not. He just kind of saw my son in Hosea eleven one and said, oh, "Boy, that's got to be another coded prophecy." So the Son of God, Jesus, must have gone uh, to Egypt and come back. Well, I knew that it happened some, but uh, once I began reading several books that uh, went into great detail about Old Testament sources, like Randall Helms' book, Gospel Fictions, I found that no one of them covered all the ground, but between these seven or eight books, uh, none of which were trying to say the whole thing came out of the Old Testament, they all had such cogent arguments for virtually every story in the Gospel and Acts. I was really shocked. Uh, I thought, yeah, it, it just seems like the easier conclusion to say that they simply rewrote the Old Testament to make a new one.
0: Right, I was I was amazed. Matthew uh, is is um, an interesting source. He's the one that that read that um, scripture literally, where and he said that. Uh, Jesus entered into Jerusalem sitting on two donkeys? Is that right? <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. Oh, that <laughs> makes a perverse kind of sense, <laughs> oddly enough, in that uh, we know from other examples that the uh, rabbinical scholars... Though they still understood the Hebrew parallelism and even used it themselves in their own writings, uh you know where you say the same thing two ways right it uh, gives it a nice ring uh, they didn't seem to care about that when they were interpreting scripture and they would try to like the uh, the Kabbalah people later on, they were trying to wring anything they could out of the text, and so they would uh, not regard it as the same thing said twice, but two different things. And so Matthew is interpreting this just the way the rabbis did. Uh, okay, uh, uh, on uh, the colt and the foal of an ass. Two animals, somehow. Uh, how? Well, he doesn't care. He's just saying, yeah, it happened, all right.
0: Right, it doesn't matter because it was in the scripture, so
2: it had to happen. Yeah, Yeah. so it's sort of rodeo riding, I guess.
1: (laughs) Right. Well, my big burning question is, is there any creativity in Christianity? Because the more I research this stuff, the more I discover it was either plagiarized from the Old Testament or it was plagiarized from an earlier civilization.
2: But that's probably true of almost everything in every religion and literature. Uh, intertextuality, as they call it. Like I, I've, the uh, to me, the New Testament versions are usually more effective. Though I know that's very subjective, than a lot of the stuff in the the old. But uh, there's at least a brand new spin on it that makes it just as good. And I think the uh, the the creativity lies in the redaction. I began to think this way i'm a big fan of h p Lovecraft and i've uh and I read his stories before almost any other uh, horror stories, but then later, I began to read some of the authors that uh, he had read and uh, and now, like my favorite Lovecraft story, The Dunwich Horror, I can divide that up and tell you about eight different stories that he <laughs> borrowed major things from, and yet it doesn't hurt the originality. His story is much more than the sum of its parts. So I think your creativity, you, you, it's like God in the old uh, creation myths. He doesn't create out of nothing, not even in the Bible, but uh, takes preexistent matter and shapes it into, into a cosmos. So that doesn't really bother me, though it does serve to... Explode the myth that it, here it is, just de novo, uh, unique and right from the mouth of God.
0: Right, certainly. And it, it tends to bother us more as modern authors. Because we're, we're really, um, sensitive to the criticism of plagiarism, but that criticism didn't really exist back then. I mean, this is what these guys did. They would take myths from other religions in Babylon, for example, the Enuma Elish or the Epic of Gilgamesh for the Noah flood story, and they'd kind of mold them because they sounded interesting and, and they were effective in conveying their message, and they'd mold them into the, the Jewish sort of tradition so it would be effective for them. I mean, that's what they did. Yeah, yeah.
2: It's just not a cra You have to ask what they seem to have thought they were doing, right. and and ultimately, even if they were making a buck, off it, which is impossible, uh, <laughs> it, it the motive hardly matters. We're not we don't have telepathy. We're just dealing with texts, however they got there, and it's kind of fun to see how they got there sometimes. But as to the why, we can't know it, and it doesn't make any difference. I, I saw this thing uh, on TV. Uh, there's this. Series. I remember Gene Scott, the uh, profane cigar-chomping evangelist. Uh, he was really a wild character, uh, <laughs> and I remember him uh, having some cartoon thing kill a piss ant for Jesus on strange. <laughs> well, he croaked, but his wife runs the thing now, and she's an ex-porn star. Excellent. And oh, God. Uh, and, and she's very erudite. She's got uh, whiteboards filled with Greek and Hebrew, and she's explaining to the audience what the text means. Astonishing. Uh, and uh, she said uh, – she's talking about the flood story once – and uh, said that, well, some people say this was borrowed from the Gilgamesh epic or something, but that's absurd because God doesn't copy Oh boy, that's a great way of just short circuiting the whole thing. And the the gal is so so learned, but so uh, so childish in her perspective. Absolutely, and so many fundies are. Yeah, absolutely, and
0: that's that's the thing that it destroys it destroys fundamentalist Christianity that the Bible is a literal truth. I mean, if if honestly, if you know anything about this stuff and you believe the Bible is a little riddle of truth, you're going to have to believe in ancient uh, Egyptian Osiris myths, where the sacrament came from. You have to believe in Babylonian mythology, uh, Sumerian stuff. I mean, it's it's, it's ridiculous.
1: Uh, Well, that's actually what I was trying to get after, is uh, you pointed it out perfectly, uh, Bob. And, I mean, just all of these are basically built upon the same story. But I think the most important thing that came out of your discussion there is that you are a horror fan, just like Charlie and I, and you really need to come out here for Halloween.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, every be great. every year. Where are you're in Utah. Yeah, we're in Utah.
0: Yeah. Every year we we convert my house and my yard around it into this spook alley, and uh, uh, this year it's going to be fantastic. We got a yeah. bunch of all new stuff. It's going to be wonderful.
2: Oh boy! Uh, with uh, the angel Moroni uh, peeking out to scare the kids. <laughs>
0: yeah, actually, we got a brand new actually temple just a couple here. miles from us.
2: <laughs> oh boy! Oh, I love Utah. I've been out there. I used to go out there uh, once a year for the Book of Mormon roundtable that we had at BYU until the guy that organized it was fired.
0: Yeah, uh, that's not uh, surprising. But did that? Yeah, was uh, that in yeah. the September sixth? Did he get purged?
2: What's that? What's...
0: Did he get purged what? in the September 6th where they um, uh, fired a bunch of feminists and excommunicated a bunch of uh, scholars? In the, I oh, think I didn't was even the... hear
2: about that. This would have been a maybe two years ago. Oh, so oh, okay. that was a no, little no, later. it wasn't
1: the September.
2: Oh, geez, he had another purge. Wow. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, Mormons don't like scholarship
1: a whole lot. Uh, the funny <laughs> thing is I'm fans. still waiting for them to purge me. I mean, I, I can't tell you how irreverent I am on this show, but for some reason they just want to keep me in their roles.
0: They're, they're not listening. Mm. But they also like to inflate their member roles for you know propaganda purposes. Um, Bob, you're also a member of the Jesus Seminar. Could you explain um, a little bit about that and, and how it works and what it is? Well, back
2: in 82... Bob Funk, Robert W. Funk, uh, may rest in peace, uh, a great, great guy. Uh, he had uh, been a boy evangelist and uh, got that out of his system and became a really innovative New Testament scholar and grammarian, just incredible. He and John Dominic Crosson decided that it was about time that historical jesus studies which have been going on for a couple of centuries be brought out of the ivory tower and kind of forced on the public awareness uh, and a lot of um, colleagues didn't care much for that and kind of knifed uh, funk in the back making it look like the jesus seminar was a bunch of dangerous lunatics when in fact they were just saying the same thing mainstream scholarship always had right. but certain people wanted to keep under wraps so as to reduce controversy well what he, what they decided to do was to get, well, to do with the gospels as histories. What the United Bible Society does periodically, trying to come up with a critical text, comparing all the different New Testament manuscripts, because there are thousands of them, and they're usually minor, but loads of little uh, disagreements and hard to tell sometimes. A whole bunch of manuscripts have uh, uh, this phrase, a whole bunch don't, how do you tell, and they debate the pros and cons. And as a result, you'll see uh, footnotes at the bottom of the Greek New Testament where it gives passages an A, B, C, or D rating. Uh, And um, like most of it would be A, yeah, this is certainly original to the text, but then you come up with something like... uh, uh, Jesus is refused entrance into a village because they're headed towards Samaria, and the, James and John say, uh, do you want us to call down fire from heaven on them as Elijah did? <laughs> and Jesus rebukes them, and they went on to another place. Well, some manuscripts have Jesus say, um, you don't know what sort of spirit you belong to. The Son of Man came to save men's lives, not to destroy them. Well, that's pretty good, uh, It would make sense if it was original, but it would make sense if somebody just felt the rebuke should be supplied, so they made it up. There's no way to know, and so they might give that one a C rating. could be... It's toss-up. So what Funk and Crossan came up with was, let's look first at the sayings of Jesus in the four Gospels and Thomas. And uh, then when we're done with that, the stories about Jesus and debate uh, whether we think these really go back to Jesus. Did he really do it? Did he really say it? And if it seems clear that he did, okay, it gets a red mark. And there was the famous voting with the the different colored uh, little beads you put in the, the tray, and they'd count them up after extensive debate. And uh, if, if it could be that, yeah, it sounds like what Jesus would have said based on the red stuff, but there are some problems, he might have said it. Okay, that gets a pink. Uh, if if it's, poss- if it's possible, he said it, but there's some doubt, we given a gray, if there's no way he said it, like it's plainly anachronistic or something, then that gets a black and so they did color-coded books with this material and so they just did it with colors, not letters but the same basic methodology that committees of scholars had done with text criticism nothing controversial or odd about it, except the results really, that they wound up thinking that only 18% of either category actually went back to Jesus, I think that is hopelessly optimistic, yeah. but of course most people just believe everything in there is literally true, so this seems scandalous to them. Sure, the, and the entire
0: thesis of the incredible shrinking Son of Man was stripping away a bunch of stuff, or at least giving doubts as to, to what actually could have gone back to Jesus, and they're, they're amazingly little. <laughs> yeah, that's what astounds me. Uh, not even uh the name we can't be certain of the crucifixion we can't be certain of the birth i mean the the, the miracle certainly we can't be um we have faith in that but um uh, yeah it's absolutely amazing how little of that isn't um a result of either arguments that are going on between various christian sects or or, or sects uh, christian sects with the pagan world or jews and christian sects or even john the baptist and And Jesus, I had no idea before I read this book that there wasn't even an argument between Jesus and John the Baptist. sex. That was fascinating to me.
2: Yeah, of course, almost everything in there really goes back to David Friedrich Strauss, Rudolf Bultmann, and others. I have my own spin on a few things, but I always try to give credit where credit is due. And Strauss pointed this thing out, that how could... John have thought Jesus was the the one to believe when he maintained his own sect with different prayers and rituals, fasting and all that. It would have to be like it is in the Gospel of John, which is wholly rewritten, where he says, look, forget about me, go follow this guy.
0: And And yet there's still a sect persisting at least into the second century, right? They were having these arguments well into the second century.
2: Yeah, you know, who believe that uh, – they, they like they, they would say, look, don't you have Jesus saying that, that uh, our guy, John the Baptist, is the greatest of men born to women? Well, that's got to include himself, doesn't it? Wasn't he saying John is his superior? Well, then there you go. Who's the Messiah? It's got to be John. And, right. and sure enough, there is anxiety over that kind of thing in the, uh, the Gospels because someone seems to have appended to that um, that, uh, yet, uh, John, uh, whoever's the least in the kingdom of God, the Christian regime is, is greater than John. Absolutely. I mean, that is an attacked on uh, thing by, by Christians to, to answer that criticism. You know, it just seems so obvious. And that that almost seems
0: to supply a reason for the virgin birth, uh, aside from all the other sons of God who were born of virgins. Um, but then they can answer to the the sect of John, well, Jesus wasn't born of a woman, so <laughs> therefore...
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, um, Marcion did say that. The virgin birth doctrine has him born of a woman, just not of a man. But uh, Marcion, oh, right. was, uh, earlier than the Gospels, I think, he does have Jesus simply descend from heaven in a kind of celestial body that, that appeared to be human flesh, and he's in adult form. Uh, and so he believed, yes, Jesus was not born of any past. And so that could have figured into that debate.
0: There was a a proto-evangelion of James also that had um, Mary giving birth in a cave, but this sort of cloud escaping from her and (laughs) leaving her (laughs) hymen intact. So she was a virgin even after giving birth. That's actually my favorite right there. That's my favorite. (laughs)
2: That's probably the earliest uh, statement of the uh, perpetual virginity of Mary doctrine that the Catholic Church still promotes. One of my fa you know, the, the midwife hears
0: about it on the road, and she goes, "I can't believe this!" So she goes into the cave and she examines Mary and <laughs> confirms it.
2: <laughs> yep. Yeah, and that's uh, that's really amazing stuff because the perpetual virginity of Mary does uh, fit with docetism uh, and is incompatible with the opposite view that Jesus was really in the flesh. Docetism, which just means apparentism or seemingism from doceo to, to seem, that's like this view that Marcion and others had that Jesus didn't really have a fleshly body. It's just that it was obviously to communicate with human beings he had to appear to have.
0: Right, very similar uh, and, to uh, yeah. that's all it was. Very similar to some of the Gnostic um, gospels, where they have Jesus, I guess, um, laughing as uh, they crucify the wrong guy. Right, like he's tricked them yeah. into crucifying they, they the wrong guy. To their eyes,
2: I'm being crucified <laughs> down there on the cross of wood, but you know better, John. In yeah. fact, in that same text, the preaching of John, part of the Acts of John. Uh, there's, uh, It couldn't be any clearer. John says, well, let me tell you what it was like to follow Jesus. I noticed he left no footprints in the sand. I noticed when I sat beside him at the table, he ate no food. I would touch him, and my hand would pass through him, or it would be like striking steel, and you could never tell which. Uh, once, when he thought everybody was asleep, he stood up, and down from heaven comes another like him and says, how's it going with your disciples and he said well not very well what do you expect <laughs> they're only men <laughs> they're astonishing like whoever wrote this certainly did not believe jesus was a flesh and blood human and that's kind of consistent with the idea that mary's uh, uh, hymen was unbroken right he couldn't have actually been born right surprising cause... they kept that in the story he's not like, a man
1: you know the interesting thing is, is uh, I mean even uh, about another man coming down and speaking to Jesus. It actually makes me think of Didymus Thomas Jude, and and yeah. this is a yeah this is a theory that Charlie and I have brought up, and and we've just only scratched the surface bringing it up on irreligiosity, but Didymus is the Greek for twin Thomas is the Hebrew for for twin and Jude of course this is doubting Thomas and so it's kinda been a theory Charlie and I have tossed back and forth that Jesus had a twin and possibly when Jesus was crucified Jude was brought forth and kind of displayed to the to the disciples and such as as the guy. Hey, you know, Jesus really isn't dead because I mean, after he's dead, what do you do at that point? So yeah, that, I mean, what are your thoughts on this? The, well, there's an
0: entire right. there's an entire uh, gospel of uh, is it is it the gospel of Thomas um, where he goes yeah, to Judas India? Thomas, Judas yeah. Didymus Thomas, right, and he's actually mistaken for Jesus because he is Jesus's twin, literally in that gospel.
2: Oh, now, that's the Acts of Thomas. Is that the Acts of Thomas? Uh, in, oh, acts of Thomas. In, the, uh, in the Gospel of Thomas, it's uh, made clear that he is equal to Jesus because he's shared the same enlightenment. And then in the book of Thomas the Contender, which is partly based on that, it actually says, Jesus says to him, you are said to be my twin, but of course the likeness is spiritual. But yeah, the brothers of Jesus include a Jude, or Judas, or Judah, same thing. Uh, And uh, so uh, he's got a brother named that, and, and Thomas is somebody's twin brother. So that's the inference they drew in the New Testament period. Well... I was just reading a great uh, book called uh, The Creation of the Christ by Paul Louis Cuchot, uh written in the uh, 20s. Uh, he brought this theory up, and he said that, yeah, uh, it's been suggested that the reason you have the doubting Thomas story in John 20, right after the appearance to the apostles in general, without saying Thomas wasn't there, first they're just the disciples are there, he appears, just like Luke 24. And then it says, well, Thomas was out getting the pizza when Jesus appeared. <laughs> and uh, and so he said, hey, guess what? The Lord is risen these he says, Look, I'm sorry, I'm not believing that until I can check out the wounds. And then, sure enough, eight days later, here he is again, uh, who shows us that, that uh, the point of this seems to be to erase the doubt, to undercut the criticism that, that uh, Jesus wasn't risen. It was just his twin brother that uh, played the role. So that is a theory that uh, you don't hear discussed much but uh uh pretty good
0: one yeah in your book there's an interesting theory where in mark there's this passage where uh, some of the people who are watching Jesus being crucified stick a sponge on the end of a spear and uh, it's, it's filled with vinegar and they give it to him to drink and, and he uh, dies really quickly after that so maybe it was you know laced with some sort of drug or something and Joseph of Arimathea gets you know permission to get Jesus's body down they put it in the tomb and uh, you know he, later he revives and he's not dead at all he never died on the cross <laughs> at all yeah
2: this is an old theory too and my theory is not so much that that may be what happened to Jesus, though it's possible, but that uh, since this is just like what happens to crucified heroes in contemporary novels, uh, that uh, and, and there are loads of clues about it, once you know what to look for in the Gospels, that all four Gospels seem to presuppose a hero story version in which Jesus is delivered from the cross. He's crucified, but not killed. And uh, so that that's The triumph. After all, like, look at Jesus in Gethsemane. He's uh, praying that God will spare him the death on the cross. He says, Of course, I'll I'll do whatever you say. Well, uh, is is he, does it make sense that uh, the Father is just going to? tough nookies uh, you're going through with them. I mean isn't that a kind of a shoe dropping that leads you to suspect something else Jesus is on the cross and his detractors are saying some savior he couldn't even save himself let him come down from the cross alive and and uh, then we'll believe you stupid bastards that's exactly what's going to happen uh, and etc and, uh, etc et why is he buried with a rich man nobody ever explains that uh, but surely The reason is, as it is in these various novels, like uh, uh, Kyrius and Kaliraway, a famous uh, novel back then, Uh, it's uh, to provide narrative motivation for tomb robbers to see this opulent tomb sealed up. I said, oh, let's go break in. There must be all kinds of great funerary. goods in there, like the pharaohs. And uh, then they break in and find out, well, there's not, but there's this person reviving. Oh, my God, what are we going to do now? we got witnesses. Let's take them with us. And surely that's what was going to happen. They're going that, that explains how Jesus wasn't abandoned in the tomb, and so on, and so on. So I, I'm just convinced that there was this original version of the story in which uh, Jesus didn't die on the cross. Whatever happened to the real Jesus, if there was one, who knows?
0: And there is precedent for that in the Old Testament. I mean, basically uh, Abraham demonstrated a willingness to sacrifice his son Isaac, and because of that willingness, God said, "Hey, you're off the hook. You don't have to do
2: it." Uh, you're very sharp. That's right. Uh, and and oddly enough, there are there are rabbinic statements implying that some of the rabbis, surprisingly late in the day, were reading some version of Genesis in which Abraham did kill him. And it says, "Well, we know that the ashes of Isaac, or the blood of Isaac, or whatever, enriched the ground, and, and implying it was some sort of a bale character, dying and rising, perhaps, as, as Hebrews intimates, uh, and that his willing. Yeah. i
1: Oh, he just said that was fascinating. And of course, there's
0: there's precedents for that too. Uh, in in the Old Testament, there was a story about a king who um, prayed to God that uh, if he'd win this battle, uh, he'd sacrifice the first thing that uh, greeted him uh, when." he came back and you know I th- yeah, was expecting that to be his dog but it turned out to be his daughter and he ended up having to kill her and he had to go through with that. He wasn't let <laughs> off the
2: And some people have tried to say oh no no and explain it away. I don't know I don't remember how anymore but it's interesting that you've got and now if what the rabbis are reading is the original version then, then what we are reading is a later correction where he escapes from the cross because they found it unseemly. Well, uh, same thing happened with you know the uh, story you just mentioned with Jephthah and his daughter. It's paralleled in the Iliad with uh, Agamemnon sacrificing his daughter Iphigenia so that Athena will allow the, the wind to blow and they can leave yeah. the harbor. Well, somebody didn't like that, and I think it's in Ovid's version. Uh, Athena can't bring herself to allow this, so at the last minute, she takes a doe and makes her look human and whisks the real Iphigenia away. And the same thing thing with uh, Zeus. His father, the Titan, Kronos, is eating all of the his offspring, for fear they'll grow up and usurp his throne, but uh, Gaia manages to conspire with Rhea, Zeus's mother, to make it look like his dad was eating him. But he whisked him away, just like in Revelation chapter 12, to a faraway island. So this this uh, cheating death thing is incredibly old and goes way back.
0: <laughs> and, of course, the earliest versions of Mark that we have don't have the last 12 or 14 verses um, mm-hmm. where Jesus makes his post-resurrection appearance. You know, the earliest manuscripts we have have uh, the stone being rolled away and the the women seeing an empty tomb, and then it just ends. Yeah. Yeah. And that ending never really made sense to me until I read your book, and I thought, hey, this could have been an original story where uh, Jesus kind of revives and emerges from the tomb and then the women come and, and the tomb is empty
2: yeah and uh, even if you don't wheel that into the thing as Charles Talbert pointed out the end of Mark with no appearance of Jesus would have made sense to an ancient reader because there were plenty of stories like that where Empedocles or Romulus or one or another had apparently been killed but nobody could find any trace of the body and then a heavenly voice uh, told them that oh no no he's, he's been taken up to heaven to become one of the gods and uh, you, you might see him again, but you might not. It didn't matter as long as there was an angelic voice telling that. And so you wouldn't have needed any resurrection appearance. But the, the other gospel writers uh, apparently were looking at it that way and decided to tack on their own endings. And to me, you just can't get around the fact that uh, to have the women after all obey the what the the young man or the angel says to do is to it's not merely to continue the story uh, it is to reverse it uh, you have to hammer in a new hook to hang anything else on so the the notion of resurrection appearances doesn't just supplement mark it grossly contradicts mark uh, so I, you know, that that's. Yeah. I don't think anybody's ever really given sufficient weight to that.
0: Another interesting possibility um, is I was reading Dawkins or Hitchens, one of the new atheists, and they were talking about uh, cargo cult. One of the the cargo cults in um, South America or the islands, and they had uh, anticipated that this ghost ship uh, would come back and it would give a bunch of things, and the ghost would you know go throughout the island and uh, give a bunch of uh, treasures to the tribe. Um, and it, it actually flipped from uh, in a single generation from anticipating, everyone's anticipating and stories about this ghost ship are are, are spreading around, anticipating his return to... I think by 1930, the story had flipped to, uh, "Hey, the ghost ship had come back." You know, it, it already came.
2: Does, do they mention that? Uh, I had never uh, heard that before. I did in an article in uh, Secular Nation, I think it was, because that there is an instance where they believe the big boat suddenly had come back.
0: Yeah, I read that in uh,
1: God Delusion. It was in Dawkins' God Delusion.
2: Yeah, that's oh, actually well, a know.
1: fascinating piece right there.
2: Right.
0: So the original ending of Mark could have been it. You know, it could have been that they were just anticipating the return of jesus and uh... they were anticipating anticipating and then like twenty years later all of a sudden bam didn't you know jesus already came back It already happened and that's why <laughs> you have the resurrection
2: happening to small groups behind closed doors or out in the remote uh... Yeah.
3: right, right. Uh,
2: the lakeside and all that otherwise you know if if it would have happened the way anybody would want it to uh, there'd be jesus uh, showing up in the sanhedrin and uh... before pilate in fact uh... Uh, this guy, uh, I can't remember his name, who wrote the Arco volume in the uh, early 20th century, uh, he wrote all these fake uh records of the Sanhedrin and Pilate and stuff that he claimed he found in the Vatican Library. Asa Mahan I think it was. And uh, that's what would have happened, presumably, but if you have these lame things, it's like, uh, hey, you, you say John the Baptist was supposed to perceive the Messiah. I mean, uh, sorry, Elijah was supposed to perceive the Messiah. Uh, we didn't see him. Uh, uh, what have you got? Well, uh, actually it was figured, if you see, it was John the Baptist. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. Uh, no, no, it, it was literal, but there were only four people there to see him Uh, too bad you weren't there yeah sure yeah oops
0: (laughs) it also explains why you know josephus for example who grew up in galilee uh in the generation after jesus uh seemed to have no idea about any of these events or any of these
2: miracles right
1: yeah definitely josephus if not anybody else
2: I don't know, uh, but uh, to me, the uh, it's hard to say. Like there were probably all kinds of weird things going on uh, that m- still might not have come to, to his notice. But I think Acts actually is based partly on Josephus. Uh, that it's and, and uh, it's pretty clear that the. The Day of Pentecost thing is is completely a theological creation. Uh, it's for one thing it misunderstands what speaking in tongues is. If you have it right in First Corinthians, it's not speaking other human languages, but uh, but Luke uh, changes it as if it were in order to foreshadow the Gentile mission, uh, which is his big concern. And and yet if that had if it had happened. Uh, where uh, Peter says, yeah, this blessing uh, can be yours, and also anyone, far <laughs> off, anywhere who believes. Uh, how then can you explain the Cornelius thing in chapter 10, where, where the Holy Spirit has to twist his arm to get your butt over there to this Roman centurion and preach to him? Look, I'm sorry, I, I can't. I, I'm associate with a scum. Uh, how is that possible? Or how can Jesus have given the Great Commission to go out and missionize all the nations and have uh, the Christians say, Well, why do you actually went to speak with the Gentile? Are you out of your mind? Uh, yeah. you know, it's obvious that the statements of, of, of Jesus telling them to do it are the product of, of somebody trying to win that argument once it had come up. Uh, but uh, it, it... Yeah, it
0: seems to me they're, they're the very um, solution that they come to for this argument, to answer this argument, undercuts the actual existence of the argument in the first place. In other words, if Jesus had given the, the Great Commission to go out and spread the gospel to all the Gentiles, then why is Peter arguing with Paul? Why did that argument ever take place?
2: that's right and, and so what do you have with uh, you got the great commission go into all the nations well the other side wasn't going to be outdone so they fabricated uh Matthew 10:23 t- uh, don't go anywhere or the 10 somewhere uh don't go among the uh, the villages of the Samaritans or the Gentiles but only the lost sheep of Israel uh, wait a minute, why even bother saying that unless somebody is doing the opposite? So you have people, oh yeah, you got a thing from Jesus, well, I got one too. Give me a minute.
0: <laughs> and, uh... Yeah, what about the Sumerian woman who comes and, and uh, Jesus says, you're not fit to be at my table. Oh
1: God, that poor woman. He's being a total jerk. Jesus was a dick at that point. <laughs>
2: Well, that's – though he is, that's a kind of a uh, a form, uh, a recurring form where Jesus is raising the bar, like when he says to the guy with a demon-possessed son, he says uh, something like – if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. in the poor sucker just says, uh, Lord, I, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Jesus is sort of testing him out with a, I think, a Socratic pose. But still, it doesn't matter. Look at the out. The outcome of that one. In uh, Mark, it says, let the children first be fed. Uh, I I was sent uh, first to the house of Israel, but in Matthew, I I think it is, he says, uh, the bread is not for the dogs, but for the kids. I was sent only to the house of Israel. Uh, What happened there? I mean, somebody doesn't like the version they received. And so you have to ask, well, are these people lying about what Jesus said? I don't think they would have thought of it that way, though I don't care if they were and we can't know. I think rather they're just amending an authoritative text like you'd amend the Constitution. They weren't really thinking of it as what Jesus said. It's just the charter document that needs to be amended.
0: Yeah, I mean what what all these arguments and and contradictions and – interpretations do is put an end to the uh, fundamentalist Protestant idea of solo
3: scriptura.
2: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, if you take it to mean I don't need to read anything but the Bible, and I've known people like that, that is just ridiculous, and they're not doing it anyway because they're reading their church's theology into it. Right. Uh, Massive harmonizations that were spoon-fed. But that's right, you would... Uh, uh, I guess you could get around it by saying as Martin Luther did. I mean, he propounded the sola scriptura thing, but he said uh, you you interpret it by the grammatico-historical method. You, you certainly do need to know the grammar and the original languages and the historical references just to fill in the gaps that the original readers uh, didn't, didn't have a problem with. but uh, So you, you could stretch it that way. That, that's pretty reasonable. But the problem is that you can't do what else Martin Luther did and start with the assumption that it's all going to agree and that it's uh, going to be clear to any reader, which he did say. That that's just obviously not the case. Except, of course, uh, for the Book of Mormon.
1: Of course, because that is the new dispensation. We all must be converted.
2: <laughs> you got the same thing there. The, the differences in Christology in the Book of Mormon, for instance. It's not at all clear. I mean, there are different views given about the, the Trinitarianism or what? Subordinationism. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I, it's interesting to note, you can show how A lot of the Book of Mormon is based on specific Bible passages. And then you realize, well, gee, it's just what the New Testament did with the Old. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> right. It's
0: no different than what went before. <laughs> no.
2: No. It isn't. It, it, if once you understand what biblical criticism says, you realize, yeah, that's the same method that the that Joseph Smith uh, used, uh, and he's just doing what his predecessors did.
1: Yeah. This is this is the most recent of uh, just examples of exactly what the New Testament did to the Old Testament. Yeah. Actually, one of the questions I had now, uh, Charlie and I have joked about this, but I mean. There are, there are times in the New Testament where Jesus is literally a dick. And uh, we we like to uh, look back at and the uh, the childhood texts on Jesus where, you know, his fingers are wrapped so he kills his teacher, that sort of thing. Oh, yeah, great, yeah. And, and I halfway wonder if some of those just, like, less-known texts actually slip their way into the New Testament. I mean, hell, he walks by a fig tree out of season, doesn't have figs for him, and he kills the thing. I mean, seriously— right.
2: He's a dick. <laughs> yeah, it's obvious that uh, the redactors are trying to mitigate that by making it implausibly into a lesson of faith. Uh, Peter says, holy mackerel, the, the thing withered on the spot. And he says, oh, uh, yeah, and, and uh, what you should draw from that is if you had faith, you could do the same thing because so-and-so, so-and-so. <laughs> it's as if the, you can really hear the, uh, the redactor trying to take your attention away. And then Luke uh, changes, he rejects. It all together, and has has instead a parable about a a tree being uprooted and thrown into the sea, like the uh, the earlier version of a mountain. That's what he decides to get rid of it that way. But you've also got uh, Luke uh, 2, I think it is, where Jesus, as an adolescent, goes to the temple and his idiot parents don't know that he's not with them in the the caravan. And (laughs) they go back and say, oh, my gosh, I thought he was with you. Let's go check. And so they're looking at all the video arcades and the comic book stores in Jerusalem. Where the heck is he? The last place I remember seeing him was in the temple. Well, let's go there. And so they do, and he's debating uh, halakhic dialogue. With the scribes, uh, and they say, hey, Son, you that is worried. And Jesus looks at him with disdain and says, Why did you have to look? Uh, where else would I be? And okay, I'll come along quietly. And that's just like in all those infancy gospels where the parents of Jesus are shown as idiots, and Jesus <laughs> has this godlike perspective where he can barely put up with them. And the same thing is true of the water and the wine in John 2. This was originally a childhood gospel story. No disciples were in it. Uh, Jesus has done miracles to get adults out of a bind before. You can tell because when the idiot adults find they don't have enough wine for the Wedding reception. Why does Mary s- say, uh, you know, they're they're out of wine? He says what? What the concern is, of of mine is that woman. Uh, and th- th- that there's that petulance like you have uh, in the in the gospels. And then she turns to the the uh, master of the feast. And says, look, uh, do whatever he tells you. He'll come through with something because he always does. It's like reading the Superboy comic.
3: <laughs> and uh,
2: and sure enough, he's all right. And he he does the thing, and they're all. Shocked. That's just like when uh, math. Uh, not. Uh, it might be uh, infancy Matthew Thomas, where um, Joseph is in the carpenter shop, and the poor blundering idiot can't get the the legs on a chair building equal. And Jesus comes in and says, alright, you hold one end, I'll hold the other, and like a faith healer he lengthens the legs.
1: Uh, and so uh, there's this,
2: it's this constant thing where they're just, uh, the this, the adults are idiots. Or you mentioned the the tutor. Uh, ABC and Jesus says, oh, I know that already, uh, can you tell me the cabalistic meaning of it? He hits him with the ruler and Jesus uh, blasts him. And this <laughs> stuff like that, so it does creep into the New Testament, or how about the thing with the I love this one where after the transfiguration they 're trying to the disciples are trying to exercise this demon and jesus' eyes hes said, like, what, what are you arguing about Is we thought we could We can do it ourselves, yeah. And he he says, faithless generation, how long am I going to be with you? How long do I have to put up with you? that's (laughs) like, I mean, that's Zeus come down to earth. Yeah,
0: and that story where uh, Jesus was <laughs> correcting Joseph's mistake by pulling the, and stretching the the plank out of the correct length—that was kind of a turning point. You know, before then, Jesus's miracles were all you know acts of, like evil. Like he was killing children who bumped into him, and and uh, then the parents get angry at him, and and uh, Jesus makes the parents uh, blind.
1: Yeah. <laughs> oh God, those are hilarious.
0: <laughs> yeah, all the rest of the parents are getting mad at Joseph. They're saying stuff like. Hey, Joseph, teach your kid to pray, not to curse. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah, and he says, look, you got to stop doing this to people, right? And he says, look, and he grabs him by the neck and says, if you knew who I am, uh, you wouldn't even say this to me. Uh, it's enough that you yeah. speak to me. Don't touch me. Uh, really amazing stuff. Right, uh, amazing.
0: Uh <laughs> Uh, getting back to the canonical Gospels, of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's interesting, you know, how many of these uh, events that that kind of contradict each other, uh, that you you read and, and you read this stuff your entire life. But if you read it as it's presented in the New Testament, you know, you read Matthew first and you get that. You read Mark second, which you know they used to think that um, uh, Mark was just this sort of abridged version of Matthew, you know, like the Reader's Digest version. Um, It turns out that Mark was was, uh, written first, actually. Yeah. But, you know, you you read Matthew, then you read Mark, uh, and you go over the same events, and you kind of have this idea that, oh, yeah, I remember that event um, from Matthew, and then you read it again in Luke, and um, uh, it seemed to confirm this idea, this naive idea that you have, that that all these Gospels are are kind of agreeing with each other. Um, But you have to kind of take... Uh, the events and and read them kind of side by side to actually even be aware uh, of these contradictions at all. Uh, And a lot of people read these Gospels their entire lives and and don't have any idea about this
2: stuff. Yeah, uh, Bart Ehrman said that was the first thing that shook his fundamentalist faith when he looked at a uh, Gospel Parallels book where they had the um, matching texts side-by-side out of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they match generally, but not specifically. And so, geez, which one of these did Jesus say? And uh, he realized it's simply out of the question to say that uh, they're verbally inspired and inerrant.
0: Now that brings up a good question. Um, is there anything in your opinion uh, that that actually does Go back to Jesus in, in these gospels, uh, assuming, of course, that that Jesus actually exists.
1: Yeah, we're still uh, out on the did Jesus exist <laughs> argument. Well, the
2: most convincing model, as far as I'm concerned, is that of S.G.F. Brandon, who wrote books like Jesus and the Zealots, where he says uh, it, it looks like there are attempts, or extensive ones in Mark, but really also in Luke to distance Jesus from having been thought a revolutionary against Rome. Now, why, where did these rumors come from? Were they a misunderstanding, or was he actually someone like Judas the Magician, or Judas of Galilee, or various other ones Josephus tells us about? And uh, there's if, look at the um, cleansing of the temple. It says that he stopped anyone from uh, bringing any vessels back into the temple well the the temple was huge and that implies he occupied it uh, and there were temple guards always posted there so that implies some kind of a battle uh, so either nothing happened and, and Mark has just worked this up uh, trying to imagine what it would have looked like in utter ignorance of it or he knew darn well what had happened but has tried to reduce it to something where it just looks like Jesus is some nut turning over the tables in a church basement for <laughs> rummage sale. Uh, and that, uh, So I find Brandon's argument pretty convincing, except for one thing. It, it seems to me the similarities to these other would-be messiahs and such that we read of in, in Josephus and uh, Plutarch uh, it seems to me more likely that they are the sources for the gospel stories rather than uh, being spontaneous historical parallels. So I I find that that kind of blows that one out of the water, but if I'm wrong on on that, that uh, they've been copied by the gospel writers, then I'd say, uh, yeah, Brandon's probably right. Jesus was a priestly revolutionary.
0: Yeah, it does seem as the Gospels go on, yeah, they take more and more blame away from Pilate and put it onto the Jews.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, as you go on, the, the, the actual prejudices of the time that people were working on the things.
0: Right, and is it better at this time to, say, piss off the Jews who already seem to be rejecting your message in droves, or, say, the Roman Empire who uh, has all the political and economic clout?
2: Yeah, so who were they going to play up to? And they kind of apparently envied the status Jews had as a privileged religion uh, in, in the eyes of Rome, and felt that they deserved it. And so that would be another reason to make Jews look bad and Romans look good.
3: Yeah,
0: so it's in their best interest to say hey Rome we're we're not uh, revolutionaries we're not trying to upset the apple cart here you know leave us alone. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> but yeah. then again, why would they be carrying swords then and why would Jesus say sell your garments buy swords? I
2: mean, Yeah, weird. there's another one that Brandon pointed to if it, I mean, I suppose Luke could have just made this up because he wants to prepare for the Application of the Isaiah fifty three quote he was numbered among transgressors, but that that seems so contrived that in itself sounds like an attempt to explain away the presence of the swords, which was already in Mark. You know what's going on here? They're uh, they're fighting for him and. Uh, uh, so there's a lot uh, to that. It uh, makes a lot of sense. But on the other hand, there's yet another thing in the, uh, the Mark 13, uh, Matthew 24, Luke 21 apocalypse on the Mount of Olives. Jesus uh, warns his hearers, or originally readers, not to be deceived and to think that any of the would-be messiahs and prophets uh, are in, in the Jerusalem siege are the second coming of jesus himself now that implies i mean you don't tell people to do what they're already not doing that that implies <laughs> that uh in in the writer's day that was a problem that a lot of christians said oh, simon bar giora that's jesus returned, or uh, uh simon bar kochba uh, in 132 ad that's the second coming of jesus what more do you want uh, and uh, and we know that uh, from Justin Martyr that Simon Bar who was supposed to be the Messiah, uh, and did actually fight off Rome for about a year or so. Issued his own coins, may have rebuilt the temple, etc. Uh, that uh, he persecuted Christians that wouldn't accept him as as the, as the Messiah. Well, that implies some probably did, and that's probably who's in view in Mark 13, uh, the people that said, well, this is the second coming of Jesus." Uh, and uh, so you you've that, um, once you once you have that confusion made, then elements of these other would be messiahs can start creeping back into the story of the historical Jesus, so he's already cleansing the temple of the Lestoy, as as josephus says um Simon Bargioris did uh, he's already. Uh, being flogged uh, before the procurator, but won't say anything, as Josephus says Jesus Ben Ananias did, and so on. So I, I really am distrustful as to whether any of that is original to Jesus, and if it isn't, then we're back to a unknowable fictive Jesus.
0: Now we're starting to run out of time a little bit here, but since you brought up Josephus, I do have one question. You know, there are two mentions of. Uh, Jesus in Josephus. Now, there's almost universal consensus uh, among scholars, uh, as far as I know, about the second of the two mentions, but I want to talk about uh, the first of the two, the Testimonium Flavianum. Because it seems to me that the consensus on that one, anyway, is that, uh, at best, it is a partial interpolation. P, you know, well-meaning Christians who are copying this uh, inserted some of their own ideas. But you have a lot of serious scholars saying, "Hey, if you strip away all the confessional aspects, you know, such as where he says that he is the Christ, if you say he is called the Christ, if you strip away all the the, the overtly Christian stuff, you're left with what is possibly um, uh, something that that's real." And my point is, if you're going to strip away the confessional aspects of it because it's obviously an interpolation, why don't you just toss the entire thing out?
2: That's what David Friedrich Strauss uh, said. Once you see the point of a thing, the tendency of it, and discount that, you really have no reason to think there's any legitimate uh, remainder left. There's no reason to believe the whole thing wasn't cooked up for that reason. It's like taking a bad text and making it into a good one. It's as if Ehrman and all these moderate guys said uh... well this is disqualified for these various uh... statements uh... let's just get rid of them and, and accept it anyway there, there's no reason for that
0: right one of the reasons uh, the scholars typically accept uh... the twenty point nine point one reference is that origin in the end of the second century when he's uh... Um, arguing against celsus uh... references that you know where they dragon james in front of the sanhedrin but uh... somehow even though he's very familiar with josephus he quotes him right and left uh, he totally misses the the one thing that would have won the argument for him, you know. But somehow he totally missed it.
2: Yeah, he says one <laughs> thing about Josephus we know, he didn't believe Jesus was the Christ. Well, then right, he must have exactly. been reading this. The other thing, though, I think it's even more likely to be an interpolation because uh, if you uh, remove the thing about Jesus, well, you don't even have to do that. It seems like it's actually referring to the assassination of of one. Contender for the high priest's office, who was the brother of Jesus, son of somebody or other else, who's mentioned elsewhere, and that it isn't about Jesus the Nazarene at all.
0: Right. You know, Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua, James; these are all extremely, extremely common names in the first century. Yeah. It's interesting that you bring up Jesus the Nazarene because you know the the big thesis of the, the incredible shrinking son of man is that you know uh, the more we find out about this stuff, the the less we we feel comfortable. Uh, uh, saying that we know about this Jesus character. Case in point, uh, his birthplace. You know, there's some passages still inside the New Testament that say uh, Jesus uh, the Nazorian, mm-hmm. which, you know, like the Essenes, was an a, a early first
2: century cult. Yeah, which we hear about elsewhere. and. Rene Salm has done this astounding uh, book, The Myth of Nazareth, where he goes over all archaeological evidence said to be from Nazareth, and he, he shows how uh... even a thousand years or two uh... before the new testament period the nazareth plateau had been sporadically inhabited but that there is no evidence of habitation uh... there during the period jesus is said to have lived there's only graveyards and stuff which people wouldn't live by there's no evidence (laughs) of this but there is datable evidence that shows people had begun to resettle it uh, around 50 AD. Now, that happens to be perfect for this old theory, that when, if, if there was a Jesus, or at least when he's placed there historically, there was no Nazareth, but by the time the Gospels were written, there was. And, and that's yeah. why they thought it natural to say, oh, it means he's from Nazareth.
0: Yeah, it also gets back to the whole anxiety of influence thing, right? Yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah, because they they didn't like the idea that he'd been a member of some sect. It's the same problem as him being a disciple of John the Baptist. Wait a minute, isn't he that? He's the son of God. He knows everything already. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you Uh, know...
1: Charlie's actually right. We are running out of time, and I gotta tell you, I've got a list sitting next to me, and I'm not even half through it, so I would love to have you back, but there is one question, and this is kind of a joke between Charlie and I. Now, uh, you, I'm sure, know of Apollonius of Deanna. I mean, the arguments back and forth between Jesus' disciples and his over who is most divine.
0: Oh, yeah, I was gonna ask about that,
1: too. Yeah, yeah, I knew you were going there, but you lost it.
0: Yeah, in this case, I'd say Apollonius wins, because in his confrontation with Rome, he didn't get crucified, he actually escaped.
2: Yeah, so... yeah he's standing in front of Domitian, about to get his head handed to him, uh, and he uh, just vanishes into thin air, <laughs> and uh, then appears across the Mediterranean among his disciples, and they say to him, hey, can this be true, or, or is it really you, or are you a ghost uh, ascended from Persephone's realm? And he says, no, no, look, uh, tell damas the chief disciple to come and touch me and see i am no ghost from the nether world well now that's almost yeah, exactly a, just like luke 24 uh and 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 the point is no no i didn't die i'm not dead and returned i i, I cheated death it's still me why isn't why isn't that what it means in luke yeah exactly
0: anyway sorry laden i didn't mean to jump in there and uh take the thunder away from you uh you had a question
1: Oh, no, no, no. I, I was just, I mean, a uh, fascinating topic. I'm not going to stop you all from jumping in, but uh, my, my question to you is, why is it we're following Jesus? He's crucified. Apollonius actually had the power to get away. I mean, personally, I'd follow Apollonius.
2: Absolutely. Laura, some said that Jesus uh, got away, too. Or, or Marcion said that Jesus wasn't raised from the dead by the Father. He raised himself, as it still says yeah. in the Gospel of John. Yeah, but <laughs> I'm sure, I mean, it's all institutional rivalries and all that yeah. kind of thing. You
0: know? And of course, the, the most common Christian counter argument to that is that the sources we have for the, the biography of Apollonius of Tyana were written, you know, after uh, the, the, the Gospels were already floating around. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so instead of um, Jesus copying Apollonius, this actually was a pagan response to the Christian Gospels or Christianity in general.
2: Uh, That's what Eusebius thought, and everybody likes to say that, but I say there is no evidence of literary borrowing. None of the stories are that close as they are, for instance, with uh, the widow of Nain and this uh, Elijah story it's based on. You, You do not have the specific words or even plot elements. It's just the same sort of thing again and again. Uh, that you find with the Gospels, Apollonius, Romulus, Empedocles, etc. It's the kind of thing, that the wording is never uh, that close, which it could easily have been, if that's all uh, Philostratus was doing.
0: Fascinating, fascinating. Really? Well, hey, it has been great having you on. Yes, it has. It's been so great that uh, um, it's a shame to only spend an hour with you. We'd love to have you back on. Sure, anytime.
1: Excellent. Oh, that's beautiful. Well, I mean, uh, like Charlie said, we are out of time, but once again, we here at Irreligiosophy would just, we bow down to you and we thank you for coming Ah. here, because we know about a tenth, if that, of what you know, so.
0: (laughs) A tenth? I think you're vastly overestimating our knowledge. Bob, you got a doctorate
1: in this stuff, don't you?
2: Oh, I have one PhD in New Testament, another in systematic theology.
1: Yeah, like I said, we know nothing compared to you.
2: <laughs>
0: I love the fact that you lost your faith right in the middle of pursuing a master's degree in the topic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so
2: did uh, so did D.F. Strauss. He finished up his a defense of the resurrection of Jesus, and as he finished the last word, he said he knew it wasn't true. Awesome. Oh, that's interesting.
0: <laughs> Again, thank you so much. Uh, we really enjoyed having you on.
2: Oh, for me, too. Yeah. Talk to you again soon, I
3: hope.